All right, good morning. How are we doing? So my name is Eric Burnley. I, uh, I serve as an elder and uh, a worship leader here at Genesis, um, and it is just a great honor to be together with you guys this morning to be able to open up God's Word. Um, but before we do that, um, we wanted to take a moment together just to celebrate a little bit because I believe this week, maybe Thursday, is Mike Krieg's 75th birthday. And while we are going to celebrate with him a little bit, it's um, maybe a little bit bittersweet because he's not able to be here currently with us. He's in the hospital right now. So, but I believe he might be watching online with his family. So we just wanted to take a moment to celebrate that. And uh, God is faithful right? I don't know how many of you know this, but Jody and I actually, I think we've known Mike for over 20 years now because of friends and family that um, I've known since I was five, actually. Um, And Mike's been here at Genesis for about 10 years, I think, and his family has just been through a lot of suffering these past couple years. Um, But we know God is good, and I think our sermon from last week on suffering, undoubtedly hits a little too close to home for them, maybe. But as we talked last week, the cross of Christ tells us that we don't suffer without meaning. We don't suffer alone, right? Your family of Christ is there. And we don't suffer without hope. And our suffering does not have the final say because Christ is risen and we can have hope in him, right? But today, we just wanted to lift him up a little bit uh, while he's in the hospital, celebrate with him how God has been faithful and shown his faithfulness through Mike for years of him following Christ and pointing his family to Jesus. So, um, we just, Mike, we do have this card for you, and we'll get this to you, but your church family signed it, um, and uh, why don't we all just give him maybe a big Happy birthday, Mike, on the count of three. Can we do that? One, two, three. Happy birthday, Mike. All right. So, in addition to that, we are continuing in our series in, uh, called Confronting Christianity, as you can see there. And I just thought maybe since so many of these sermons are hard that we would maybe start out with a little game this morning. So I'm going to name 10 things that are available in our modern world today, and I want you to think in your head about what they all have in common, okay? So we'll start out with number 10, chocolate. Oh, yeah. I'm like a 70 to 90% dark chocolate kind of guy. I brought some 100% dark chocolate home from Ecuador once, and... I, I'm not going to go there again. It needs like a little sugar or milk fat or something in it. I don't know. Um, number nine, electronic devices. I would bet that probably at least 85% of us have an electronic device on them right now. They are so ubiquitous. Number eight, cannabis. Uh, all right, I know it's legal. I would... I guess I would just hope maybe that less than 85% of us have it on us right now. 
Kids, if you don't know what cannabis is, you can ask your parents later. Um, number seven, clothing. I would hope that 100% of this have this on us right now. But I do know that there are a lot of people listening online at home, right? Hi, Mom. Um, number six, rubber. If you drove here this morning, I would imagine your tires are made of rubber. Um, and palm oil, number five, is the most consumed vegetable oil worldwide. And then we'll, uh, let's speed through these last four. Uh, number four, I believe, is bricks. Number three, diamonds. Number two, pornography. Number one, shrimp. So, what do these ten things that are readily available in our modern world have in common? Anyone? They are, at least in some form, provided through slave labor. And thus ends the fun of our game. All right? Now, this might bring you to take a look at that device in your hand or the chocolate-covered shrimp on your table at lunch today a little bit differently, but I don't mean to cast judgment upon any of us for owning such things. I just want us to see how pervasive slavery still is at a global level, even today, right? Here in the United States, we can tend to frame our entire thinking about the word slavery around the Civil War era transatlantic slave trade and not even give a thought to the fact that slavery is alive and well this very day, that our country's inhabitants are indeed regularly benefiting from the sweat of slaves in deceptively innocuous and seemingly inconsequential choices. But as Americans, I get that. I mean, it's totally natural that to think of that period of our country. First, it's entirely understandable. Our country has a deplorable history centered around the subject of slavery. And that has caused immense ripples of havoc that we still wrangle with today. A country cannot have such a historically evil and heinous period without it affecting the mindset of generations to come, right? But if you look throughout history, I think you quickly begin to see that, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Slavery has reared its head in societies near and far, old and new. And in the midst of grappling with this truth, people have often come to the question of where God stands on the notion of slavery. And as the Bible is the tangible, comprehensible revelation of God himself, that often results in our question today, which is, does the Bible condone slavery? Skeptics and atheists often point to passages or verses um, just seeking to find support for how they believe God uh, maybe doesn't even follow his own moral code. They're seeking to defame or question his character. And I think it's really important that we consider this question deeply. Is, God's, is it God's heart for slavery to exist? 
I was talking with Mike Hubbard um, a couple weeks ago about this, and I don't know if he's going to remember this or not, um, but he was quoting the topic, and he actually kind of misspoke, and he said, he framed it as, does the Bible condone racism? At least that's the way I remember that conversation going. So I, I think that's a really telling picture of how Americans might approach the topic of transatlantic slave trade in the United States. Slavery in that time period was so intrinsically tied to race. And it's because of the transatlantic movement of these black people from Africa to the slave markets. And for supporters of slavery, any black person was perhaps seen through that lens of being a slave or a potential slave. I think it's important to note for our understanding that slavery in the Bible wasn't really like that. It wasn't so race-based. Hagar was an Egyptian slave to Hebrews. Joseph was a Hebrew slave to Egyptians. In the Roman Empire where roughly a third of the people, a third of the population were slaves, you couldn't necessarily walk down the street and tell just by looking at people who was a slave because it was not tied to the color color of their skin, like it was in America, right? One of the best historical expositions of the rise of slavery and racial tension in the United States that I've read is Jamar Tisby's book, color of compromise, okay? He takes the reader from those fledgling colonial days through the American Revolution uh, where, you know, systems started to be formed and perhaps, you know, racial tension started to be manifesting in there. And um, all the way up through the 1800s, the Civil War era and beyond into emancipation and the Civil Rights era. Um, it's a great read. Um, it, do, it is from a Christian perspective. You may not agree with totally everything that he concludes, but I think it's a good resource nonetheless. Um, slavery in this period was also centered on the chattel principle. And that really just kind of means, as Walter Johnson terms it, the idea that the bodies of enslaved people had a monetary value. Masters considered slaves as their own property, and they felt that they could do with them as they pleased, and that, for many, included corporal punishment. And there is absolutely no doubt that through those years, there were individuals in this country claiming the name of Christ who used the Bible for their own selfish purposes to support their motives of slave ownership. And that mindset crept into the, into the church leadership a little bit and has subsequently affected decades of Christian relationships. So when skeptics and atheists point to Christianity and they say, you hypocrites, look at the history of the church with regard to slavery, I can't necessarily disagree with them. All people have issues of sin. You cannot underestimate the sin of people, even people who claim to be believers. People like Jonathan Edwards, massively great preacher. He did own slaves. 
he was used by God to help further the emancipation cause. But he even had blind spots. George Whitfield as well. Great godly man, used mightily by God, but still had blind spots with regard to slavery. Never underestimate the sinfulness of man. Right? Sinners are going to sin. But it is when skeptics start to say, your God supports slavery, that I have to vehemently disagree, right? Because if you really read the Bible as a whole, you have to see through creation and the gospel God's heart and how he is against slavery. But that takes more than reading just a couple verses here or a little passage here, right? So what we're going to do today, what we're going to seek to do anyway, is to look at how the Bible, how the gospel, how God himself speaks to the subject of slavery. We're going to talk through some points of practicality, but ultimately we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament that points to how through the gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, you are free, you are family, and you are fruitful. Okay? To start out with, though, I think it's important that we take a look historically how people have used the Bible to support slavery. Oftentimes, this boils down to a lesson in the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Okay, big terms. Let's just clarify for a second. These are just two primary ways that you can interpret the Bible. Okay, exegesis is what we attempt to practice here at Genesis, right? Where you, you look at the text of Scripture and you exegete or you pull out God's intended message or his meaning from the text. You get yourself out of the way, letting God, through the divinely inspired word, speak for himself. And you are just merely looking to pull out his message from the text. Eisegesis, rather is where you formulate your own idea, and then you walk into Scripture looking to support your message. You would choose a Scripture passage, um, sometimes perhaps taken out of context, reading it with this preconceived notion in the back of your head of what that text says, seeking support for your own message. And this, I think, muddles God's intended message, and it dishonors him. So exegesis is a key component of expository preaching. Theologian John Stott put it this way. Expository preaching is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. The opposite of exposition is imposition, which is to impose on the text what is not there. And I think that's often what we see happening here. Wherever people are seeking support for slavery in the Bible, they are approaching the text with this mindset focused on their own message, and they leverage the text of Scripture for their own purposes. You also do see the use of, and abuse of Scripture in other inventive ways, such as what was known as the slave Bible. 
right? This is basically a greatly reduced repackaging of the Bible with the intent of providing slaves with just enough essence of the gospel, but also leaving out anything that would promote freedom in Christ, right? Anything that might, might embolden slaves to attempt to gain their freedom. One such slave Bible contained only 14 books of Scripture. There are 66, right? Like the book of Galatians, just right out. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Passages like that were just purposely left out in favor of emphasizing passages like Colossians 3.22. Bond servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You can actually see this one um, if you watch that uh, movie on Harriet Tubman's life called Harriet. It's like right up front, first few minutes, I believe. Uh, It's on HBO Max or whatever they call it these days. Uh, Titus 2, verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Ephesians 6.5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. These passages and others like them were used to readily support slavery and keep slaves willing to remain pliable under the thumbs of their masters. So that begs the question then, how does God intend for us to approach these verses? And I would just ask that you hold that thought because we will get there, okay? Now when you begin to really start to look at slavery in the Bible, passages in the Old Testament, I, I think, kind of large, fall into two, largely two groups, okay? Number one would be descriptive passages descriptive stories that mention slavery. And I specify descriptive to note that in a lot of these cases, the Bible is simply describing what is happening, not prescribing, right? The Bible is saying, this is how people are living. This is not God saying, this is how you should live, right? The Bible will often report things that it does not support, You can think of your local news station, right? They're not advocating theft and murder. They're just simply reporting it. Um, This would include stories like Joseph, right, where he gets kidnapped and by his brothers sold into slavery. The Bible's not supporting that. In fact, it expressly forbids it. But sinners are going to sin, right? God, in his mercy, does take that hard situation, though, and turn it for the good of his people. Okay, so that's one grouping. I would say another grouping is Old Testament laws, which are often what atheists and skeptics will run to. Passages like Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, um, sections of Deuteronomy. Here, I think it's important to remember that these are given to Israel as a nation. They're intended for kings who are ruling over a society but are ultimately under the authority of God, okay? In giving laws to regulate slavery, God is not saying 
slavery in and of itself is a good thing. In fact, by giving laws about it at all, he's plainly stating it is a bad thing. Esau Macaulay put it this way. There is a difference between laws that reveal what God wanted us to be and those that limit the damage we do to one another in a fallen world. Slavery is not something that God intends. It is the product of a broken world under the effects of sin. It is a manifestation of human evil. Okay? At the end of the day, passages like Exodus 21, God is reminding Israel of his heart. Hey, as I call you to be set apart as a nation, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. Remember that. And how you train your slaves, how you treat your slaves as human beings rooted in the premise of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that all people are created equal and free in the image of God. And therefore, they have intrinsic value intended to reflect his goodness and his glory in the world. Now, ultimately, if you think about it, I think all of these things roll up under the Ten Commandments, right? Because if you were truly loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, pretty much everything mentioned in passages like Exodus 21 would be null and void, right? Remember, just because these laws are in place does not mean people are actually following them all the time. Not much different from how Congress outlawed foreign slave trade in the United States in 1808. Slaves were then still smuggled in, right? Again, sinners are going to sin. It's natural. But again, Esau Macaulay's voice is so good in this. He points to this article that asks, in the Bible, it says that a child should submit to his parents. But how can a child submit to his parents if you can sell him? And a husband is supposed to be faithful to his wife. How can, you, how can they be faithful if you can break their family up? There is a fundamental incongruence between the creation story and saying that passages like Exodus 21 show that God condones slavery. That is not his heart. Now, we get to passages in the New Testament, and the New Testament is in a different context, right? Christians were there living under the rule of Rome, which was certainly not functioning as though it were under God's authority. And in Rome, remember, slavery was so deeply woven into the fabric of society, a third of the population. But these New Testament passages are built upon the foundation of the Old Testament, which fleshes out God's heart, like we just talked about. His plan for creation, right? In the New Testament, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ applied on top of that, in addition to. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage in the New Testament that describes a situation and see how the heart of God is applied there which I believe will help us to see other areas of Scripture, like those three New Testament passages we just talked about, used for the purpose of supporting slavery, um, that have been used in an eisegetical manner, right? 
I believe we can subsequently see those passages in a new light through this, this lens of creation and the gospel that places them in a context that more closely aligns with God's own heart. So we're going to finally get to opening our Bibles. So if you would find your Bible and turn with me in, in, in there to the book of Philemon. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some baskets around here with, with Bibles in them at the end of these rows. In that Bible, we're going to be on page 1101. And if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, by all means, take one of those home with you. All right. So let's <clears throat> start with a very broad overview of what's going on in the book of Philemon. Philemon comes right before Hebrews, if you're still flipping. Um, So the Apostle Paul is in prison, okay? And he's writing this letter to Philemon. That's what this book is. It's a letter. So why is Paul writing to Philemon? Well, Philemon was a Christian who had a household substantial enough to host a church in his home and also to have slaves. Philemon was a Christian who owned slaves. One such slave named Onesimus, for one reason or another, he he ran away. Paul somehow runs into Onesimus while he is in prison and knows that Onesimus needs to reconcile this runaway situation with his owner Philemon. So Paul is writing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus the slave. That's the 12-second version, okay? We're going to get more in-depth as we go here. Okay, so we'll actually pull back to verse 4. We'll start there, okay? I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. 
I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Okay, and I think we can stop there. Um, Why don't we go ahead and pray, okay? Father, we are struggling with uh, an extremely difficult question here this morning. And I just pray that you would continue to guide our time together. And Lord, I just pray that you would show us your heart today. Help us to see in this passage how you guided the Apostle Paul to navigate this extremely difficult situation. And I just pray that you would help us to see your heart amid slavery, that your heart for salvation for all through faith in your son, slave or free. And I just pray that you would help us to be changed people and Lord, may people be saved today from enslavement to sin through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so from this text, I think we can kind of step into our points a bit here. I think we can begin to see how through the gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, you are free, okay? Now let's think about this scenario for Onesimus. He is in a very tenuous situation, right? Onesimus is a fugitive slave, which means under Roman law, he could be caught and returned and punished. He could be branded with an F for fugitivus on his forehead. He could be beaten, flogged, even killed, all at the discretion of his master. Because a fugitive slave was essentially on the hook for stealing property from their master, right? Onesimus himself being the property. So now he has a broken relationship with his master Philemon. And he is in need of reconciliation. And Paul steps in to try and help facilitate reconciliation on behalf of of Onesimus. He mediates with Philemon, pleading on behalf of Onesimus for Philemon to forgive his debt and accept Onesimus back as a brother. Paul even says he'll pay any debt that Onesimus owes, right? Folks, that is the gospel, right? Each one of us, as a sinner, has a broken relationship with our heavenly master. The gospel tells each of us, you are desperately in need of reconciliation with your creator, your master, because he is perfectly holy and just, and you are not able to stand before him in your own righteousness because you have none. You need to be righteous to be acceptable to him, but you cannot do that in your own strength. And that's where Jesus steps in, right? He takes on the debt that you owe your master. He pays it for you. He mediates with the Father, pleading on your behalf to reconcile your relationship with your heavenly Father so that you can be welcomed 
as an adopted child of God. And that is a gift. All you do is receive it. And believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross because your sin requires atonement, death. And the work of Christ is what makes you you righteous, okay? And when that happens, when you actually believe that and you trust in him, you are then set free from enslavement to sin. Sin no longer is your master. God in heaven is your master. Your debt of enslavement has been paid and you have been reconciled to God and you belong now to him. Now we see this in our text. If you look down at verse 10, we see Paul pointing to how he introduced Onesimus to the gospel, and he subsequently believed. When Onesimus ran away, God, in his sovereignty, saw fit to lead Onesimus to cross paths with Paul. I think you see that in verse 15. It says, while he was, you know, it's a passive sort of text there. And when that happens, though, Paul does what Paul does. He bleeds gospel ministry, right? Um, So effectively, when Onesimus is introduced to Paul, Onesimus is introduced to Christ, or rather he is introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Onesimus hears the gospel, is changed and saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now if you look at verse 18, Paul says, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge that to my account. Think about this in the literal enslavement context, right? Many times throughout history, people would incur debt that they could not pay. And in order to pay that debt, to fulfill it, they would take on a contractual enslavement in order to pay off their debt. Not all enslavement was like this, but some was. This was called debt slavery. Uh, Who here has a mortgage? Okay. You can kind of think of this as a very, very mild, modern uh, form of debt slavery because you owe the mortgage company and you need to take on some form of employment usually in order to pay that mortgage. They're seeking their money regularly. You need to fulfill that up for up to 30 years. Paul knows the debt that Christ has paid on his behalf. And he's saying here similarly, I want to stand in the gap for Onesimus and reconcile his debt to you as Christ has for me. So once Onesimus is saved, right, he is really set free, free from enslavement to sin. He still, for the time being, has an earthly master in Philemon, but his ultimate eternal master is the Lord because he has been bought and paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. So I think the question this morning then becomes, are you, are you free? That's our primary concern this morning. Have you been set free through finding grace and mercy in the arms of the one who knows you through and through and still loves you far more than you could ever understand? He knows absolutely everything about you. And he still wants you to be free in Christ. Now, point two, I believe through the gospel of Christ, you are family. Okay, verse 15 and 16 note that Paul is pointing out 
God's purpose of separating Onesimus and Philemon. This is God's sovereignty here. Philemon would have perhaps experienced some form of loss or hurt at Onesimus' departing. Onesimus as well quite possibly had some hurt. Maybe that's why he ran away. But Paul wants them to see that it was God's purpose that was at work. God had a plan to save Onesimus for his purpose. And it is for the betterment of their relationship that they can be brothers in the Lord. They now have equal standing in the family of Christ. They are brothers in Christ. And Paul's just asking Philemon to recognize that in Onesimus, just as he would any other member of the Colossian church family. Now, verse 17, Paul says, Receive him as you would receive me. Noting that in light of the gospel of Christ, Onesimus' standing is equal to that of the apostle Paul. That's a big mind shift for Philemon, probably. He is blasting apart Roman societal views of slave and free, pointing to the notion that, founded in the creation story, that all men are created equal in the image of God. This is a wonderful biblical foundation for our own declaration of independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. If only our country could observe that perfectly. But again, we live in a fallen, broken, sin-filled world, don't we? Now, when you're looking at this passage of Scripture, it is only natural to question, why does Paul not demand the manumission or the freeing of Onesimus? Or rather, why does Paul seemingly let Philemon off the hook for being a Christian who owns slaves? Sometimes people will point to this section of Scripture and, and say that that's, that's the Bible condoning slavery right there. Yeah. But I think to read that, to read Philemon that way and say that the, that supports slavery does not really understand what Paul is doing here because he, his call is actually, I think, far greater on Philemon. <clears throat> I do think freeing Onesimus is probably what Paul is, ultimately wants. But Paul knows that if he authoritatively demands that, he will not be allowing the Holy Spirit to do in, in Philemon's heart what only the Holy Spirit can do, right? And remember, slavery in the Roman Empire was practically the backbone of their economy. One-third of the population, again, were slaves. To think that a small group of believers in Colossae would be able to eradicate slavery would be fairly, fairly ridiculous. I mean, but I do think that there's something much deeper at work here. If you would look at the very last word in verse 15, it is forever, right? Paul is not concerned with the relationship of Philemon and Onesimus in the context of the kingdom of Rome. Rome lasted a long time indeed, but not forever. And accordingly, Paul is not concerned with the kingdom of Rome. Paul is concerned with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is where Philemon and Onesimus will be family 
forever, right? The kingdom of heaven is where Philemon and Onesimus will be freed from enslavement perfectly because of their spiritual emancipation through the blood of Christ. And therefore, their relationship in light of the kingdom of Rome, that's not Paul's concern. He's concerned with the kingdom of heaven, that context. Remember, Paul loves Onesimus as a brother, as not as a nameless slave. He is showing Onesimus the dignity he deserves as an image bearer of God, a family member of the one true God. And if Philemon is truly living as Jesus instructed his disciples, <clears throat> he will allow the gospel to radically transform his relationship with Onesimus. And Philemon then will begin to consider himself a servant of Onesimus, willing to lay down his life for him, as Christ did for the church. That is the, the heart of God for everyone, slave or free. Right? Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's asking Philemon to do something similar here. He's asking him to lay aside his rights as Onesimus' master and to receive him back as a brother, which is what God does through Christ. Right? God rightly could condemn each of us to eternal enslavement in sin, bound in chains forever, but through Christ, he frees you to welcome you into his family as an adopted child, such that Christ is now your master, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. That's, I think, why Paul can write verses like we read earlier, Colossians 3.22, Titus 2.9, Ephesians 6.5, verses that were ultimately leveraged through poor eisegesis by American slave supporters to intimidate black slaves who had truly been gripped by the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, into subjugating themselves to white slave owners by way of Scripture taken out of context. These verses are there because of the hope of the kingdom that awaits the hope of freedom in the kingdom of heaven, right? F.F. Bruce is a commentator and he writes in his commentary on Ephesians 6.5, he actually points to this book of Philemon. He says the epistle to Philemon provides an illuminating commentary on the mutual duties of slaves and masters within the Christian fellowship and the transforming influence of this fellowship on their relations with one another. The slave-master relationship belongs to the passing temporal order. It is a relationship according to the flesh. In the spiritual realm, Christian slaves and masters alike are fellow servants of one Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 17 is a, kind of an additional um, applicable context here. Remember, Philemon is part of the Colossian church, and Paul wrote these two books, Philemon and Colossians, 
roughly at the same time. They quite possibly were delivered at the same time. So Paul starts out in verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I listened to uh, an interview that Nancy Guthrie did with Nate Sheridan on this book of Philemon, and he approached this by saying, when the apostle Paul is working in Philemon, he's more interested in how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ changes the stations in life that we're in rather than seeking to change the stations. Does that make sense? What he means by that is no matter where you are in life, the gospel is not intended to change where you're at. God intends for you to apply the gospel wherever you are. You think of your station as an opportunity to express the gospel of Jesus. And I think that can kind of get us into our our final point, which is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are fruitful. Now, the word in the text here is useful, but alliteration is thumbs up, right? Um, If you look at verse 11, the name Onesimus actually meant useful. So when Paul says formally he was you know, he's using this, this pun, you can see. It was a name that people, masters, would sometimes ascribe to servants. Um, here Paul is saying that now that Onesimus is a believer, he is now useful for Paul's purposes, which is gospel ministry, right? There's another really interesting um, facet here. So the Greek word useless for useless is akrestas, which kind of sounds like another word, akristas. And I'm not Greek, so don't tell me later my Greek was terrible. Um, <clears throat> one means useless, one means Christless. And I think if you pair that with the notion in verse 2 that points out that this letter was read aloud to the entire church, in Philemon's home. Whoever's reading it gets to this verse, right? And they say, formerly, Philemon was akrestas. You think of how those people who are sitting there are receiving that, okay? They may see, hear that and they think akrestas. Okay, wait, wait, does he mean useless? Does he mean Christless? Or, wait, does he mean kind of both? Because that's actually what, Phi, what Onesimus was. He was useless. He was Christless before God saved him, right? But God has now delivered him from the domain of darkness and transferred him into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of heaven. This is beautiful writing, and that undertone, I don't think you can get it if you're reading just the English part, right? So if, after being saved, the Christian is considered useful for God's purposes, what does that really mean? I think we can see... Certainly, in Christ's words in Matthew 28, right, the Great Commission, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is paramount, correct? I think also we can see in Colossians 3, after verse 11, 
the outworking of what comes from being set free in Christ. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what a fruitful believer looks like, right? But this is not the fruit of your striving. You don't grit your teeth and generate this kind of fruit in your own strength. The fruit here shows that it certainly comes from the Holy Spirit. Meaning that it comes by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Okay? And that only comes from regularly abiding in Christ, being created, being centered in Him, and, and the freedom that He has given you. So, this is not a bootstrap theology, right? There, with regard to emancipation efforts, throughout the ages, though, I do think we see that it has been Christians who have proven the most fruitful with regard to emancipation. Uh, one of the earliest Christians speaking out against slavery was Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, in the 4th century AD, he condemned the entire institution of slavery, noting that it was a severe injustice for one person to own another person. He said, when you own a slave, you're treating a human being like they're an animal, which is a perversion of the created order. He says in one sermon, a single human being is of greater value than the entire universe. And if you knew how much that person was really worth, you would know that no amount of money is enough to purchase them. John Newton, lifelong sailor, served as a captain on a slave ship, right, before God took hold of him. He ultimately wrote to him Amazing Grace. He was a pastor for years. He subsequently encouraged William Wilberforce to, uh, to fight for the abolition of slavery in England. Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, very outspoken preachers on the subject of abolition. Um, I saw Jared Wilson tweet this week uh, that it was Lemuel Haynes' 270th birthday this week. He was an African-American pastor. His father was black, his mother was white, and he believed that the emancipation of the slave was the only logical conclusion when you look at the Bible. The list of Christian abolitionists in America goes on and on, right? Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. Read one of his autobiographies. They're fantastic. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Henry Highland Garnet, David Walker. So many individuals living out their fruitfulness in the gospel, seeking to abolish slavery. So then how does the book of Philemon impact us? Okay, what do we do with this? What's our application here? Well, as we talked about earlier, if you've not believed in Jesus, if you've never trusted in him, I think what God wants you to see in this passage is that Christ is the ultimate picture of God's heart, right? For our sake, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The master, King Jesus, became a servant on your behalf, so that you might be freed from enslavement to sin, welcomed as family, 
and then made useful for God's purposes. And that is a gift ready to be received. The question is then, have you received that gift? And if not, I think that's your only application today. Okay? And we, we will have people over here on the side who are ready and willing to pray with you, to talk about that gift, if you want. Now, if you have received the gift of freedom in Christ, I think you are part of God's family. You are called to be fruitful, right? To trust in God, seek ways to manifest the fruit of the Spirit for his purposes. You may recall a few weeks ago um, in our sermon on does Christianity crush diversity, uh, Scott Holdegraver crushed that sermon. He mentioned ways to approach that, and I think that there is a bit of overlap here, right? He said you can take note, you take interest, take action. Great applications. I think Jamar Tisby has a very similar approach in his book, The Color of Compromise, as you get to the end, where he talks about the arc of racial justice. We're going to take this and talk about the arc of slavery, right? The arc of abolition of slavery, ARC, awareness, relationships, commitment. It's kind of similar to where Scott went. Awareness, you can observe where slavery might be occurring today or where the gospel might be able to fruitfully interact in those ripples created by slavery here in America that we talked about, right? Awareness. Relationships, you read, listen, and converse however you can to truly seek to understand where slavery and its implications might be found today. Relationships. Commitment. Find a way to work out your fruitfulness in the gospel. Commit to that. There are a myriad of ways that you can help fight slavery today. Number one, that is paramount, share the hope of the gospel. Right? That is ultimately God's heart and his main purpose for you as a believer. Share the heart, share the hope of the gospel. Number two, you can find organizations to get involved. There are two in, here in, in town, Oasis International, International Institute. Both of those right here in St. Louis, and they serve refugees, quite likely, quite possibly coming here out of situations of enslavement, right? They need the hope of the gospel. And they have programs that you can get involved with. Um, there are others. Um, one I saw was called Tech Against Trafficking, um, which is a, I believe Microsoft helped found that. They are leading companies deploying innovative technology to help eradicate human trafficking. We started out talking about slave labor this morning. One of the most prevalent forms of slavery today is human trafficking, sex trafficking. It is rampant and pervasive and evil. And as we've just seen, I firmly believe that the Bible shows God's heart is that it be eradicated. Last but certainly not least, you can pray. Pray to end slavery. God changes hearts through prayer, right? And if you take an active stance in your prayer life of really praying to end slavery, God will change your heart and you will be hungering for the end of slavery. It will become your mission to help abolish it. So as the band comes, comes forward uh, to lead us in time of response here, I just hope that you have seen 
the goodness of God that you've seen his heart on the subject of slavery. Because Christ is the manifestation of his heart. And Christ became a slave so that you could be free. Welcomed his family and made fruitful in him for his purposes. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for this word in the book of Philemon that points us to your heart for the slave and the free. And Lord, we, we just pray that we know that we have all at one time or another been slaves to sin. But through the gospel of your son, you set the believer free simply because of who you are, Lord. You've paid our debt and you set us free, welcoming us as family, equal no matter what our earth, earthly situation is. And Lord, we thank you. You've made us fruitful, useful for your purposes, and I just pray that you would help us to trust you, to abide in you, and to manifest that fruit through your power. And I pray that you would encourage us to respond as people committed to the end of slavery in all of its forms. We pray this together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.